0: Hi, everybody. I'm Sonny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of We Gotta Talk. Not going to lie, it's a circus on my end of things, and I'm extremely grateful for the patience of today's guest, Larissa May, a.k.a. Lars. She is a digital well-being activist and founder of Half the Story, which is a nonprofit aimed at helping kids have a healthy relationship with tech and um i'm sorry for the spilled almond butter before we talked lars the myriad chaos happening over here i'm doing this without producer rachel today so things are dicey but thank you for being here oh my gosh thank you so much
1: i mean it's only uh normal to start the half the story episode with a little bit of chaos
0: because that's what we can all relate to that's right we're telling you the full story here we do not like pretense on we gotta talk but um Lars, I we talked, I think it was maybe in 2020 or 2021, we spoke wow. on Instagram Live. So it's been a while and I'm sure people are familiar, some people are familiar with your group and your mission, but I really want to bring it back and remind everyone that sort of the, the theme and the topic that we're digging into today, as we said, is not only a healthy relationship with tech, but how to raise kids in this just crazy, screwed up technological world. So Lars, half the story begins with your own personal story and how you had a really candid relationship and sort of way of sharing with people on your feed. So tell us the backstory here.
1: Well, man, what you see today is only half the story. And I guess the the best way to describe it is that I turned my pain into my superpower. And I think it's something that I hope that everyone that's listening this to this today can take away not only in their own lives, but also for their kids, because as humans, we all experience pain. And I think it's the thing that unites us, connects us, regardless of what social media tells us, which oftentimes is filters and building up walls uh, that break us. And so I started half the story, believe it or not, seven years ago out of my college dorm room. I was in a in a state of life and death. and it was really a result of my struggle with depression. And so I was very lucky to have an RA that was in pre-med and wound up taking me to the psychological care center on campus where uh, I woke up and they asked me about everything in the book from drug sex to alcohol. And I was never really a big drug person by any means and never really dabbled in that and uh, found it really interesting that the one drug I did dabble in, which was my phone, 12 hours a day, they didn't ask me about. So after I left that experience, I one felt very blessed to get the support that I needed to work through my depression, but you know, I still am grateful to be alive today because if I wasn't, I wouldn't be able to share this mission and hopefully prevent other young people around the world from ending their own lives especially due to the comparison that social media breeds. And so I I really thought that social media was only half the story and that was where it started originally just by actually printing half the story stickers and telling my own. And it really started a grassroots movement, which now has turned into something much different and bigger. And we've really become the leaders at the intersection of emotional health and tech.
0: Tell me about Larissa back then or Lars back then. You said you were on your phone 12 hours a day, which I know when we say that sounds like a lot, but realistically... If we're all honest with ourselves and check our um, phone timer, we probably all wouldn't be too far off. Um, What was going through your mind as you were scrolling and what was the cascade effect of social media on your mental health?
1: Well, first and foremost, I think that, and you're right, that that sounds like a lot of time, but to put it in perspective, the average American teenager is spending between seven and a half and eight hours a day online ultimately, that's 30 years of their life. And that's the average American teen, which is why I've devoted my life to this, because we don't address the elephant in the room and the, the real repercussions, but more, more so the real tools and ways we can change that. Uh, Lars back then was like any other young person trying to figure out who I was. Um, I was you know, in the digital world, which complicates the idea of identity for young people, and especially young women who ultimately are more impacted according to the data and the research and also Facebook's internal findings. But for me, I was someone who ultimately used social media as a way to show the world that I was secure in who I was, but really what it was was a shield and a way to create a reality when behind the screen, I was struggling with body image, I was struggling with self-esteem, I was struggling with everything. And when I got on social media, the fascinating part about it because of where I was at, I think in in, in my brain development was the highs were high and the lows were low. And When I felt bad about myself, social media was where I went as a coping mechanism, but then it would start just showing me more photos of the woman that I would never look like and never attain. And that really, really broke me. And it it broke me so much so that I actually started just moving away from my real life and I was losing social connections. I was starting to not go to class because I was just so consumed with one, my digital persona, but two was also just so destroyed by the way that I was
0: feeling about myself because of the digital world. Was there this need you felt to post better pictures, to keep up with a sort of quantity of content? Like what what was going through your mind as you were scrolling? And I, recognizing that everybody has a different relationship with it, but I think what you're describing really, really hits as far as young women yeah. are concerned and they can probably identify with this
1: yeah you know the the ironic part about it was like the worst that i was doing in real life the more that i was posting online these perfect pictures as a way to preserve mm-hmm. this reality that didn't exist and that's what's so ironic about the whole thing it's like it was all a paradox and mm-hmm. that i was creating this virtual world that was quite literally the opposite of the story that was going on in my real mind and heart and Ultimately, that forced me to dig a little deeper to try to figure out why am I doing this? And I was doing it because it was a way to cope. And what many people don't realize is that social media serves as a coping mechanism for many young people who aren't able to actually experience, identify, and connect with their own emotions, which is getting in the way of their ability to connect with others, themselves, the world, all of the social, emotional, physical, and sleep implications.
0: So where are you today in your, I mean, if you don't mind reminding us, I I know people who are watching will obviously garner that you're on the younger side. Um, But if you don't mind sharing your age, because not only is it impressive what you were able to start with half the story, but I want to know at what point you are in your relationship with tech now as well.
1: So I started this when I was 21 and I'm now 28 years old. So it's been a long but short journey, I guess, when you think about what the your 20s can bring you and now i feel so blessed because i think i was able to turn my pain into my purpose and i feel so much value in the work i do and not really like the way that i look and and i think that was a big shift for me is realizing that people loved me for my spirit and my heart and not necessarily what i looked like and as we all know looks are always fleeting as we grow up even though in america especially uh, we place such an emphasis on youthfulness and um, a lot of that i think is driven by the capitalist society that we live in because we associate youth with productivity and output and all of these things i actually just was doing a trend report for a bunch of people in france yesterday and it's it's just interesting to look even societally like how how age is perceived differently and america's and It's different se- there? Yeah, it's it's a bit different. Um you know i think in, there's a lot of cultural differences, but for example, in America, you know, biohacking is a huge trend. Um, there's tons of different, you know, Botox. Um, you know, you can get Botox for anywhere at any price, which is ultimately not good because it's not all high quality, and there are also younger and younger women trying to get these procedures and Botox. I mean, even young people I know who are like in their early twenties are saving up for lip injections because of social media. And it's, it's like, I think that as a woman, we have the right and ability to put our best foot forward. And in the Mm -hmm. modern age, that might mean, you know, getting Botox or whatever that looks like, especially if you're a woman that, and I'm sure you you experience this, who has to be front and center on TV. Right. 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 But I think we have to also be honest about, you know, for young women, like what the implications are of that. And I think in cultures like France, like in America, we're obsessed with functional beverages and super, super healthy food. One, because health is a part of our culture. But when you think about the root of why it is, it's like, well, you have a healthy mind and a healthy body, you're probably going to be more productive, you're probably going to do all these things. Whereas in France, food and, you know, aging, it's like, it's like, it's like good wine, right? Mm. Like their food is a part of community and culture and bringing people together, not as like a means to an end or a way to like get skinnier or more productive, which has its pros and cons, right? But I think it's just like culturally, we have to acknowledge like when you go out to dinner at a restaurant in Paris, you're not gonna see a group of people on their phones. Like that's incredibly disrespectful. Yet you go to America and uh, most of the time people have their phones out of their pockets, unless it's a very professional meal. So. Yeah, I think we kind of went off on a, on a tangent there. But moral of the story is I feel much more connected to myself. I use social media with a very specific intention. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the big shift that I went through, which was the inspiration for our work and program, was going from mindless to mindful tech consumption. And I mm-hmm. use tech today to actually educate people, to inspire them, and to you know ask hard questions of technology and filters and trends in the modern world.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, there's so many like sort of peripheral conversations I want to have based off of what you just said. I do want to start um, on the idea of filters and how we show up in 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 society in front of other people. This is such a big topic. Whether or not we have front facing jobs these days, a lot of us, like you said, are on our. We are the front and center in our world in social media. Yeah. And I have been really candid these days about you know how. I'm viewing the aging process as a 41-year-old woman now with three kids, kids getting old enough to understand the concept of aging, what an older person, air quote, looks like and whatnot. And I have been having this really interesting um, conundrum lately. I'm very honest about Botox and fillers and the things that I've done because I think there's value in honesty in sort of sharing because this doesn't – people don't show up in the world with a wrinkle-free forehead at 41 unless you're doing things, right? And so to me, it feels – It feels only right? To share that. And but on fair. the other hand, yeah. But on the other hand, I am really having this existential crisis of, um, and I think a lot of women at a certain point do, what example do I want to set for my children as a woman today? What example can I show my daughters in particular, even my son, as he proceeds in relationships in his life about what a woman actually looks like when she's aging. And it feels really difficult to confront the fact that maybe- I should be making different decisions. Now, sometimes vanity wins out. Sometimes that authentic desire to yeah. sort of just be who I am wins out. But it is really something for us to consider because in generations yeah. past, we didn't really have that option as women, right? It was just even my, my parents' age. So my, my mom and dad are 71 they didn't have at their disposal, not that my dad would have necessarily done it, but she didn't yeah. have at her disposal all of these myriad things that we have today to look a certain way and to take yeah. care of herself. And it, I know that as a daughter, I really loved seeing what age looked like on a 40-year-old woman, a 50-year-old woman, a six. And I'm like, oh my gosh, am I robbing my children of that opportunity? And then I think, okay, I'm overthinking it. I, I don't know. Anyway, you're saying this and it's really interesting to me to hear though how other cultures... Perceive the concept of aging and and the and the benefits of just sort of laying off of it. It's just one other thing we have to think about as women. That I think um, it's is like unfortunate. another
1: thing, another thing to add to the list, right? And it's yeah. like it's so tough. And and I think it's like on one hand, do you want to give your daughters the you know like show them that you have the right to show up at any right. age and at, in in the best way possible or you know, do you, and I think it's a balance. And I think in a lot of ways it's, and I think it's similar to tech, right? It's like, do we expose them? Do we not? And just be like, how come my mom is like so much more beautiful than all the other kids' moms, right? Which I think you also have that going for you as well. Like whether or not you're participating in that is that you're naturally a beautiful person on the inside and out, which, you know, comes with sometimes even like guilt. And it's, I mean, I, I think I've experienced that sometimes, right? Like there's almost like a a privilege to that too, of of like already having a foundation that is somewhat strong. So it's really tough, but I think on the other, the flip side, it's like cultural norms are shifting. Uh, The average life expectancy for us, I think, or what is it in the next 30 years is going to be or more around 90. Like that's a completely different reality than what our parents faced. And so there's so many hard questions to answer and i think it's just it's it's nuanced and it's cultural and it's also geographic i mean i will say what i see young women experiencing in a city like los angeles which is super image driven is so different than a city in indiana in the midwest mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere so Man, it doesn't get easier, but it, doesn't. it actually doesn't get easy when your kids are following and idolizing celebrities that are 24 years old where, you know, you go on social media and you're just like seeing all the work that they've had done. Like to me, that's the biggest problem is that we're seeing young women who are already so beautiful putting that message out into the world.
0: What do you think of the, uh, I was going to insert some celebrity's name here who we know has had plastic surgery but has refused to admit it, but I'm I'm sure you're thinking of the same people I have. What do you think of that level of celebrity who doesn't acknowledge the work they've done or the plastic surgery or procedures they've done and not only doesn't address it, generally speaking, but outright denies it when directly asked?
1: You know i I actually will say recently, so you know, I, I don't know if you you know this, but while I was building half the story, I had the ability to help build a non-alcoholic beverage brand, which Bella Hadid wound up coming in to be the co-founder of. And she recently last year, Because there was like always a lot of speculation around her in that. And in a Vogue article, she had like a huge spread in Vogue and it was basically about her mental health journey. And she actually did address getting a nose job and talked about how she regretted it as a young person in Hollywood, because what it did is actually pulled her further from her cultural identity. And I think that, you know. I think that maybe when I heard her story and when she shared it that way, I started to have this perspective shift in realizing maybe some of these women, as they become like 25, 26, 27, which is still young, but more engaged mentally, just due to your brain develop, maybe some of them are feeling shame and guilt around that mm-hmm. decision from a young age. And maybe they don't, they're still like trying to address it themselves before they address it with the world. And I think there's right. also power to that. Um, and and giving, and that's one thing that I've learned too, is like, I think as a younger person, you're emotionally more reactive and social media pushes you to kind of, when you feel something, go spit it out to the world. But I think there's also power in teaching young people to say, hey, reflect on it, take a right. beat, understand it within before you share that story. And so, you know, that's just like, I guess something I've learned. And, and like, it, it's probably not the answer you were expecting, but I do think. Sometimes there's more than the story that we see and there's always so much pressure on young celebrities to like immediately spill the tea, do this, do that. And they might just need time to reflect too.
0: That's so true. And, and, and privacy is a rarity. It's a treasure these days, right? And people are really open sometimes on their social media pages yeah. in sharing their children's stories, their children's you know particular journeys or what they're dealing with and showing the behind the scenes. And I can't tell you how many times as a business leader, people have said, Sunny, people want to see your kids or people want to. And I'm like, but I don't want people to see my kids, not too much, at least, you know, It and what you're yeah. saying, Lars, is really hitting because these are questions we confront as individuals on our own behalf, but also on behalf of our children until they are of age to decide how yeah. they want to show up in the world. So I don't want to sound like a granny, but I do always try to encourage people, especially younger people who are making that transition like I did from a more traditional media where we didn't really talk about ourselves or our family, which is maybe a little... St- sort of boring in some ways, but when they're coming into the digital space to really think about that, what will your child think in five, 10, 15
1: years? I love that you're bringing this up and here's why. I think, you know, one, so for example, right now there's a bill on the table and it's, you know, the, the kids online safety act and we're actually helping work work through that and, and, and it's a federal legislation. And it's basically you know putting onus on the tech companies to give parents the tools that they need um, to help prevent kids' negative experiences online, protect, protect them from, arm, from harm and also open up sort of the black box algorithm. So share data with nonprofits like Half the Story that will ultimately help us build programming to support kids. And although yes, we have to create accountability on the tech platform side. Um, I always find it really interesting when we do our education because we have a program where we implement education for middle schools and high schools and districts. And then oftentimes we'll offer a supplementary parent and educator or staff training. And, you know, I find it interesting because parents come in and they're like, well, how do we protect our kids? How do we do this? How do you do that? And then, you know, you ask the question of the parents, which is, who is the number one person responsible for your children's exposure on the internet? And the answer is the parents in most mm-hmm. times because they're sharing photos of their kids naked in the bathtub. And as middle schoolers and high schoolers, you know, kids will like pull up stuff like that and then share it with the world. And that becomes a vehicle for bullying. And I don't think that parents realize that, that at such a young age. like, And that's why celebrities put emojis on their kids' faces. Why? Because celebrities are already taking, you know, they're like bait for media and they don't want their kids to be that bait. And that's their way of at least trying to protect them uh, in the world we're living in. And, and it gets super complicated, like, you know, especially for kids with different identities and backgrounds and sort of styles, like, you know, if a girl's like a tomboy and her mom dressed her in princess dresses growing up, like there's identity things that come mm-hmm. up, especially in adolescence that, Is complicated. And so I guess like for parents that are listening to this really, really, really think and have conversations with your partner and your family and your parents, because we know grandparents, I always joke. I'm like the Gen Xers love to, the way they use (laughs) social media is a bit problematic.
0: Uh, um, Oversharers much? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oversharers like blasting nude pics of babies on Facebook (laughs) is uh, very much so the norm. And I think in the same way that you have to have hard conversations with your parents, when you're establishing your norms with your children, which might differ, you have to have those conversations, not just about what it looks like offline, but what that looks like online, because that digital world has become such a big part of life milestones, like the baby gender announcement, the baby mm-hmm. being born, the baby doing all of these things. And you know the focus becomes on you when you're the one posting about the baby It's not really about the baby. It's about you showing the world what's happening. And what about that baby? And how's that baby gonna feel when they're 10 to 15 years old?
0: You don't know. It's so true. Social media and technology has really forced us to confront that big existential question of who are we and why are we here? And I think some people really find the joy and or the dopamine hit in the share in the share button, right? And I, yeah. I'm guilty of it. Yeah, everybody's guilty of it, right? Who participates in these platforms? But I think what you said, Lars, was so accurate. How you show up in a meaningful way on social media is to create and craft your boundaries and show up only within those confines when you're on the platform, which I think is valuable. So tell us about how Half the Story empowers yeah. groups and companies to help set these boundaries
1: yeah so i think you know first and foremost there's a big uh we really believe that not all screen time is created equal and we don't really necessarily believe that digital abstinence is the answer and i guess i want to start first by sharing why so first and foremost um i think similar to culture and just how we look at nutrition like doing a juice cleanse and completely cutting food out of your diet is not going to necessarily have a long-term impact if the next week you go back to eating cheeseburgers and pizza the same goes with technology and there was actually a recent um study that came out last week from um you know from an experiential psychology group that found that reducing your screen time by one hour a day versus taking a full seven or eight hours off actually had a greater impact on your emotional well-being over time and that's very much so rooted in our in how we think about tech at half the story. So we have a program called Social Media U, which we bring into middle schools and high schools to help empower kids through an intervention backed experience to go from mindless to mindful tech consumption by giving them the tools, the understanding, and also the liberty to create policies within their own schools around these issues and topics. And so What we're trying to do is expand this work around the United States. Hopefully, actually, we're going to be launching in London as well, uh, because we teach kids about driver's ed. We teach them about sex ed. We teach them all of these things, but not about the tools that actually empowers them within the digital world that they spend eight hours. And a lot of the story around Tech for Kids is shame. It's negative. It's you know, tech is controlling a generation. But the truth of it is, is that there's actually a lot of power in it, and so we want to change that narrative, but also give them the tools that they need. And um, it's been wildly it- accepted just by general population, but also by kids themselves. And I think mm-hmm. that's because it's been built b-
0: with them. So that's so you're that's working with with companies that have direct access to and are are comprised of groups of kids. So you're seeing the impact of these social media, you rules and guidelines in in real time as they're being set up.
1: Yeah. So we work directly. So I say there's like kind of three entities that we work with. One is educational entities. So public school districts, uh, departments of education within different states to implement our programming. And we have a series of digital flourishing scales and, and, emotional well-being scales to help us look at the success of our program, but actually report what digital well-being looks like within different areas. So we define digital well-being as really the intersection of emotional health, which is what I guess education likes to call SEL, and digital habit. So we try to bring those two together because we don't believe that you can address one without the other. So that's really our key focus on the education side. On the policy side, what we do is uh, we work with youth to help pass policy that holds tech companies accountable and ultimately will create a lot of change on an infrastructure perspective to help increase the amount of positive interactions that they have rather than negative on the internet. So one right now that we're working on is the Kids Online Safety Act. And so mm. that's a federal legislation. Um, and then companies. So a lot of times I'll do educational experiences for ERG groups, specifically parent E-R-E-G- ERG groups, because I, I think that employers don't realize that parents are They can't thrive at work if they're not thriving at home. And Mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot of boundaries around what needs to happen in the workplace and out of the workplace to support families and beyond um, in order to build these practices. So those are kind of the three things that we do.
0: What is is one surprising fact that you think parents or people who are curious about this concept would be most surprised to hear? And I'm thinking like maybe you've seen... um, a quantifiable improvement in kids emotional well-being over time or what has your work shown you about how the positive impact that creating digital boundaries can have on kids
1: yeah so i think you know first and foremost um we look at and this is actually what <laughs> i'm pulling up some of the stuff from our researcher um but basically you know some of the greatest changes that you know we've seen over time is really digital flourishing through our program which ultimately is defined as the amount of positive emotional experiences that they have on the internet versus negative ones. And, um, we're actually working on our updated impact metrics. So I can probably share that with you afterwards. And I think one of the biggest things that similar to anything else that, that kids say to us in teens is that they wish that their parents actually set more boundaries for them. I think we see a lot of pushback from kids when it comes to telling them what to do, but when they're in a period of reflection and the parents aren't there they really rely on you as parents to set those boundaries and those habits out of the gate. I think the second thing that, you know, kids say is that they actually wish that parents, you know, put more emphasis on creating family activities that and we're doing like a 31-day screen-free holiday challenge that our teens came up with with activities that they want to do with their families because they don't feel Like they have the trust in their parents and their families to actually have hard conversations about things that are
0: happening online as well as like their own mental health. This is so surprising to me because you ask a 12-year-old and the only thing they want is their phone, access to their social media so they can get in touch with their friends. But I think you're hitting on something so important. They're also at that age where they know nothing but want to act like they know everything. And it's really confusing for them, I'm certain, if they're seeing things and coming across themes and things online that they don't even feel... Old enough or strong enough to ask their parents about. So it creates in them this sort of, I'm sure they feel frozen. You know, they're being exposed to so much and these feelings are happening in them, whether it's confusion or envy, like you said, when scrolling social media or um, self image problems. And they can't yet articulate that. It's just, it's a tremendous burden to place on kids when you think about it that way. Like, here, have the world in your hands. And now all of these concepts that never were familiar to you are going to be, and you're going to be confused, but I'm just going to give you more phone to figure it out.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that's, it is like, don't use the phone to solve problems. Like don't throw the phone at the fact that your kid won't be quiet because ultimately the phone is just replacing a need that your child has. So know that, you know, when your kid is struggling or not behaving, you know, that throwing a phone at them is not the solution. Because if you do that at a young age, think about this message. Like you're out to dinner. You have a two-year-old that's screaming. You put their iPad in front of them. You're teaching them at a two-year-old age to self-soothe with technology.
0: I never thought of that. And suddenly I feel guilty, Lars.
1: (laughs) I don't do it all the time, but I feel a little guilty. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, even like yesterday, I told you I was on the phone with this woman in Paris. She had like a little baby that was nine months old. And she's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I have no more options. I have to give the baby the phone. And I'm like, oof, like you know, our parents did it a different way. And sometimes you got to go back to the school of hard knocks and you got to be like, no, this is not. And I say that as I hold my pug who has zero boundaries. But, you know, when I have (laughs) kids, I, I think I will be very mindful of that because also I think one of the biggest things that, is that risk and, and people say, what scares you the most? And I think the things that scare me the most is one, the amount of apathy that young people are experiencing because of the amount that they are just feeling bombarded by the negativity of the digital, cultural, social, and economic uh, events. But I think the other big thing is that technology is replacing play and innovation. And being a kid is all about having an imagination and flexing that muscle. And a lot of times social media is... Handicapping that. So, as parents, I think we have a responsibility to help our kids tap into play and creativity and, you know, ultimately do that.
0: Has any research borne out in your work the perfect age to get kids a cell phone? This was a big discussion we had on Instagram. And the general sort of thought seems to be people, whether or not it's right, are activating between the age of like 10 and 12 or 13. Has research proven there is actually an ideal time to get a phone? so that question can look different in every
1: single context depending on where where you're living and i think like similar to mental physical health demographics play a big role in what the perfect age is right like our kids that are living in urban areas and really rough environments who might be on their own at the age of 10 because their parents are working three jobs like i might say give your kid a phone at age eight sorry my pug's coughing Um, but I think, you know, when we are talking about this, what we typically like to say is the right age is a freshman in high school, if they have the right tools and education around that, because a lot of, you know, I think people always make the mistake in thinking, Oh, zero to five are the most important years of your, of your child's life. Well, actually, uh, the adolescent years, like 11 to 16 are equally as important. And Hmm. we need to be able to, if we're going to give them tech, make sure that, you know, it's, it's something that we're giving them the tools to to do or use. And it's, I mean, I re- I do believe in wait until late personally, yeah. um, because I just think at that age, it's important for help to help these kids develop other coping mechanisms, because as we know, high school only gets harder.
0: I know. And I, I you know, this is a bit of a doomsday prediction, but I, I envision this future dystopia where we have lost the ability or or have really really dumbed down our ability to resolve conflicts and to yeah. understand and to emotionally grow and yeah. that's going to be a generation of leaders 20 years from now and when they're in charge of bigger things than their classroom or their group of friends what are they going to do then it's it's frankly terrifying when you look at it in that regard the, the like you said yeah. the dumbing down that can happen when we solve every problem by just going like this and burying our head in the phone
1: yeah. And I think, you know, we, we're seeing that with cancel culture, we're seeing that, like, we're seeing, we're seeing so much of it, right? Like it's, it's not a, it's not a good thing, but this is also why we have to look at SEL and how young people deal with their emotions within the lens of the digital world. We can't just be talking about emotions over here and then be like, here's your phone because the mm-hmm. phone is going to activate and impact all of that. So you know, we, we have a lot of work to do, but I will say I I have a lot of hope and, and I think that's the way that these types of problems have to be looked at or else people just get depressed and give up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know that's, it's, you're right. It's, you've got to like, look at the next yard in front of you rather than the next hundred yards. Is there something that you've come across in your work with certain groups or any research that you've read lately that does give you hope? And, show you that ultimately technology will have been a boon for human civilization and not a massive, massive drawback?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I I will say that I was, you know, that really ultimately made me feel great is that over 30% of our kids said that social media helped them re- re- improve their relationship with technology, and about 50% of them you know, were, were neutral to that, which typically means they had an experience from this program. And I think what that mm-hmm. means to me is that knowledge is power, and with the right knowledge and tools, I think we can give kids... The understanding that they need to thrive. And we need to focus on moving from, and we call it the digital well being spectrum, a, a period of survival to thriving and living more of our life in this space as opposed to just, you know, hanging
0: up by a thread. <laughs> I wonder if you have any insight into the concern a lot of people have about the collection of information, particularly from platforms like TikTok. Or other giant media companies, and if half the story is working in any way on the on the um, legislative side of things, sort of with lawmakers to prevent these companies from accessing our most intimate details.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the truth of the matter is is when it comes to adults, it's going to be virtually impossible to get legislation passed that protects that. I think minors, which is where our our where we're focused, is where one. I think kids like it's just kind of abusive to to do that and to manipulate young people, but to uh, just inhumane to do that from a responsibility perspective. And in California, we helped with lobbying for a bill that was passed that actually restricts social media platforms from using the IP addresses and exact locations of young people as a part of that data collection. But there's just a lot of, there's a there's a lot we need to do to to go beyond that. I think the other thing is, you know, anything that is free on the internet means that you are the product and your data is the product and when we work with kids we really, really try to get them riled up on that and what we want to actually do which we're kind of building right now is a fun game is <clears throat> give kids the ability to kind of put in their digital input and data and actually calculate how much money platforms are' making off their data a month because when how much about- is it just give them so- Facebook on its own uh, takes almost $1,000 a month in personal data. I mean, over a year, that's 12 grand. And when you tell young kids about that, they're like, what the heck? I could have $12,000. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of, uh, yeah, and that's just Facebook. Like, think about every single app you use and, and your phone and Apple and whatnot. And, I, and, and there hasn't really even been one place that's been able to, like, predict that. So we think it would be a really fun activity for a kid because what they want to hear is, like, oh, my God this person is taking advantage of me and I'm not like they're getting all this money off my time rather than saying, don't go on this. Like those Mm -hmm. are two completely different things. Like they have to make the choice. And after that, some kids will come back and be like, oh my God, I'm not going on Instagram tomorrow because I don't want to be giving, you know, X, Y, Z money. So it's interesting. And it's all about a game of psychology too, when it comes down to it and young, young kids. And you know, that's, that's been a big part of the battle too, right? Punch.
0: (laughs) What's his name again? Poncho, Poncho, he's so cute. I love his voice. He has a voice for radio.
1: <laughs> is.
0: it's pug ASMR. <laughs> oh my god! Speaking of big followings, I feel like that could amass a big following online, Lars. I know. In all of my free time, <laughs> have him just like moan into a, a microphone in his yeah. little pug voice. Pug ASMR. I'm
1: like, yeah, like my retirement plan. Um, <laughs>
0: That's am Like I'll
1: put, I'll put my kids. That'll be an active form of technology consumption. Is getting getting Poncho's pug ASMR going to heal the world. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the moral of the story here is like, everything is nuanced. It's, you know, story, there's data to tell both sides of every story. And we're still so at the beginning of this movement. And so being able to have these conversations now and even be on your platform means so much to us to be able to help be a part of changing that future.
0: So in some, because I know we have a ton of parents listening who really want some practical information on keeping their kids mentally healthy online. What is the quick rundown, quick few tips you have for people who are raising kids in this digital age?
1: So one is take their phones out of their bedroom and get them analog alarm clocks and make sure that you make it a family habit to put your phone to bed. Um, The second is gamify screen-free challenges. So we're doing this thing that our teens came up with, which is screen-free Thanksgiving. And basically, you know, try to get your family to do a screen-free Thanksgiving and bring in other creative activities that you can do instead of digital time. And the best way to incentivize it is by saying, the first one to pull out their phone is going to be doing all the dishes, you know, for <laughs> Thanksgiving alone, right? So like, there actually should be, there needs to be some sort of repercussion or or reward. Um, and then the third thing is, is have conversations weekly and start by sharing your own story as a parent. You can't just ask your kid questions. They're not going to open up to you. You have to start by saying, hey, social media has been making me feel this way. How do you guys feel about this? And then be able to use that as the window or door into deeper conversations about mental health.
0: Sorry, I had myself on mute there. Do you find that kids are willing to open up about that stuff if we just spend the time to ask? Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's about creating the right setting and context, and and yeah. doing it in a way that that uh, young people can relate to. And my hope is that Half the Story can continue to develop more products for parents to help with facilitating those conversations. So, um, stay
0: tuned. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, as we wrap, anything you're wanting to share that you're working on, or a way that we can sort of look forward to yeah. what Half the Story is doing.
1: Yeah. So I think a great conversation starter is to pull up the half the story, social media at half the story. It's a lot of teenagers that are having these conversations and pull that up with your kids and see what they think because it's teens speaking to teens. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's interesting to use social media as a way in about this greater conversation and then just start asking kids about, ask them what they're inspired by. So there's that. And also, you know, as you think about giving Tuesday, Think about contributing to Half the Story as we are a nonprofit. And uh, you can learn more about us at halfthestoryproject.org. And that also includes our educational program. So, you know, we want to come to more schools. We want to meet more parents. We want to speak to more companies. So reach out and hopefully we can build this future together.
0: Well, I'm really grateful, Lars, that you are part of the way forward when I... I'm able to sit down and have a conversation with you. It, it makes me have a little more faith in the future and that our kids are going to be in good hands because it's oh, a big, God. crazy world, but, um, but I love the work you're doing. So thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of we got to talk. Don't forget to rate review and subscribe and follow along on Instagram at Sonny Abada S O N N I A B A T T A. All of the latest blog posts are at we got to slash blog.